Section 8 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 23. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Aaron Stone. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 23. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 8. The Last Voyage by Mrs. Opie. We cannot fail to observe, as we advance in life, how vividly our earliest recollections recur to us, and this consciousness is accompanied by a melancholy pleasure when we are deprived of those who are most tenderly associated with such remembrances, because they bring the beloved dead before our mind's eye, and beguile the loneliness of the present hour by visions of the past." In such visions I now often love to indulge, and in one of them, a journey to Y, was recently brought before me, in which my ever-indulgent father permitted me to accompany him when I was yet but a child. As we drove through C, a village within three miles of Y, he directed my attention to a remarkable rising or conical mound of earth on the top of the tower of C Church. He then kindly explained the cause of this singular and distinguishing appearance, and told me the traditionary anecdote connected with it, which now, in my own words, I am going to communicate to my readers. I know nothing of her birth and parentage, nor am I acquainted even with her name, but I shall call her Bertha. The story goes that she lived at C, a village three miles from Y N N and was betrothed to the mate of a trading vessel, with the expectation of marrying him, when he had gained money sufficient, by repeated voyages, to make their union consistent with prudence. In the meanwhile, there is reason to believe that Bertha was not idle, but contrived to earn money herself, in order to expedite the hour of her marriage, and at length her lover, whom I shall call William, thought that there was no reason for him to continue his seafaring life, but at the end of one voyage more he should be able to marry the woman of his choice, and engage in some less dangerous employment in his native village. Accordingly, the next time that he bade farewell to Bertha, the sorrow of their parting hour was soothed by William's declaring that, as the next voyage would be his last, he should expect, when he returned, to find everything ready for their marriage. This was a pleasant expectation, and Bertha eagerly prepared to fulfill it. By the time that Bertha was beginning to believe that William was on his voyage home, her neighbors would often help her to count the days which would probably elapse before the ship could arrive, but when they were not in her presence, some of the experienced among the men used to express a hope, the result of fear, that William would return time enough to avoid certain winds, which would make one part of the navigation on that coast particularly dangerous. Bertha herself had, no doubt, her fears as well as her hope, but there were some fears which the lip of affection dare not utter, and this was one of them. Bertha dreaded to have her inquiries respecting that dangerous passage answered by, yes, we know that it is a difficult navigation. She also dreaded to be told by some kind but ill-judging friends to trust in providence, as, by such advice, 
the reality of the danger would still be more powerfully confirmed to her. This recommendation would to her have been needless, as well as alarming, for she had, doubtless, always relied on him, who was alone able to save, and she knew that the same almighty arm was underneath her lover still, which had hitherto preserved him in the time of need. Well, time went on, and we will imagine the little garden before the door of the house which Bertha had hired, new, graveled, fresh flowers sown and planted there, the curtains ready to be put up, the shelves bright with polished utensils, table main, white as the driven snow, enclosed in a newly purchased chest of drawers, and the neat, well-chosen wedding clothes ready for the approaching occasion. We will also picture to ourselves the trembling joy of Bertha when her eager and sympathizing neighbors rushed into her cottage, disturbing her early breakfast, with the glad tiding that William's ship had been seen approaching the dangerous passage with a fair wind, and there was no doubt but that he would get over it safe and in daylight. But Bertha's joy was still mingled with anxiety, and she probably passed that day in alternate restlessness and prayer. Toward night the wind rose high, blowing, from a quarter unfavorable to the safety of the ship, and it still continued to blow in this direction when night and darkness had closed on all around. Darkness at that moment seemed to close also upon the prospects of Bertha, for she knew that there was no beacon, no landmark to warn the vessel of its danger, and inform the pilot what coast they were approaching, and what perils they were to avoid, and, it is probable, that the almost despairing girl was, with her anxious friends, that live-long night a wanderer on the nearest shore. With the return of morning came the awful confirmation of their worst fears. There was no remaining vestige of William's vessel, save the top of the mast, which showed where it had sunk beneath the waves, and proved that the hearts which in the morning had throbbed high with tender hopes and joyful expectations were then cold and still beneath the mighty waters. How different now was the scene in Bertha's cottage to that which it exhibited during the preceding morning. That changed dwelling was not indeed deserted, for sympathizing neighbors came to it as before, but though many may be admitted with readiness when it is time for congratulations, it is only the few who can be welcome in a season of sorrow, and Bertha's sorrow, though quiet, was deep, while neither her nearest relative nor dearest friend could do anything to assist her, save by removing from her sight the new furniture or the new dresses which had been prepared for those happy hours that now could never be hers. At length, however, Bertha, who had always appeared calm and resigned, seemed cheerful also. Still, she remained pale, as in the first moments of her trial, save when a feverish flush occasionally increased the brightness of her eyes. But she grew thinner, and her impeded breath made her affectionate friends suspect that she was going into a rapid decline. Medical aid was immediately called in, and Bertha's pleased conviction that her end was near was soon, though reluctantly confirmed to her, at her own request. But it was not alone the wish to die and be with Christ, 
nor the sweet expectations of being united in another world to him whom she had lost that was the cause of bertha's increasing cheerfulness as the hour of her dissolution drew nigh no her generous heart was rejoicing in a project which she had conceived and which would if realized be the source of benefit to numbers yet unborn she knew from authority which she could not doubt that had there been a proper landmark on the shore her lover and his ship would not in all human probability have perished then said bertha henceforth there shall be a landmark on this coast and i will furnish it here at least no fond and faithful girl shall again have to lament over her blighted prospects and pine and suffer as i have done she sent immediately for the clergyman of the parish made her will and had a clause inserted to the following effect i desire that i may be buried on the top of the tower of sea church and that my grave may be made very high and pointed in order to render it a perpetual landmark to all ships approaching that dangerous navigation where he whom i loved was wrecked i am assured that had there been a landmark on the tower of sea church his ship might have escaped and i humbly trust that my grave will always be kept up according to my will to prevent affectionate hearts in future from being afflicted as mine has been and i leave a portion of my little property in the hands of trustees for ever to pay for the preservation of the above-mentioned grave in all its usefulness before she died the judicious and benevolent sufferer had the satisfaction of being assured that her intentions would be carried into effect her last moments were therefore cheered by the belief that she would be graciously permitted to be even after death a benefit to others and that her grave might be the means of preserving some of her fellow-creatures from shipwreck and affliction nor was her belief a delusive one the conical grave in question gives so remarkable an appearance to the tower of sea church when it is seen at sea even at a distance that if once observed it can never be forgotten even by those to whom the anecdote connected with it is unknown therefore as soon as it appears in sight pilots know that they are approaching a dangerous coast and take measures to avoid its perils but if the navigation on that coast is no longer as perilous as it was when the heroine of this story was buried and the tower of sea church is no longer a necessary landmark still her grave remains a pleasing memorial of one whose active benevolence rose superior to the selfishness both of sorrow and of sickness and enabled her even on the bed of death to contrive and will for the benefit of posterity end of section eight end of the rover volume one number twenty three edited by seba smith and lawrence labrie